Matthew chapter 7, as you find that, you can stand for the scripture reading, Matthew chapter 7, and I'll be reading beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. Now pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for all that you have given us here, for your words We are reminded, God, that you said yourself that your words are life, and that Peter said there is no one else who has the words of eternal life. So we thank you, God, for what you've given us that we might um, receive in faith and that you would accomplish in us, God, all that is in your heart to do within us. So we do, Lord, just turn our hearts to you and pray that you administer to us as only you can. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount here, reaching right, really Christ's conclusion to all that he's been saying over these last three chapters. If a young person were to come to you, boy or girl, and say to you, how can I have a successful life? I wonder what you would say. Simple question. They've been watching you for a while. They've seen you and they've seen you prosper. They respect you. And so they're they're looking ahead at life and you're looking back a bit. And and you're a bit flattered um, that they would come and ask you such a profound question. How can I have success in life? What would you say? Moses said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. David says essentially the same thing to his son Solomon. Just before his death, his last charge to his son, and he said, Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. I would hope and pray that if a young person were to come and ask you that question, how can I be successful? That your first thought is not finances, but your first thought is a relationship with Jesus Christ and obedience to what he has said in his word. Because that is the true means for success. 
Anything else is sand. And in this passage here that we're looking at at the final part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying we're all either building on a rock or we're building on sand. And anything other than that rock is sand. And it will not result in success. It will result in destruction. So I'm just going to go back and read these few verses again and make some observations and then some other application. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, we grew up, my family, um, in Corpus Christi, and we spent quite a bit of time out at the beach. At least I did. When I wasn't in school, I would go to the beach. And I made a point of skipping school all that I could in high school so that I could be out at the beach. I had it down to a science. Um, when I was a young boy, every so often, my dad would buy a load of dirt to spread across the lawn. And, um, and I loved when the pile of dirt came because I would spend so much time out there just digging in the dirt and making tunnels, which scared my mother because she thought I would graduate from the dirt pile to going out to the sand dunes and digging tunnels in the sand dunes and die. Um, because people did that every so often. We'd hear news accounts down in Corpus where people were camping out on the beach and they thought, oh, it'd be fun to dig into the dunes and then the dunes collapse on them and they literally died. Very few people lived out on Padre Island when I was growing up and I was told it was because it's sand. And when the hurricanes come, it's going to just blow your house away. And the few houses that were out there were built up 8, 10 feet tall up on stilts so that the floodwaters would pass underneath them. Now, Padre Island's all built up. I guess we've improved our building methods. I'm not sure. Um, but Jesus is saying here, it is folly. It is not wisdom to build on sand. And the rock that we should build on, he says, is his words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. So what are these words of his? Well, we're not in the epistles yet. It would include that. I have a red letter edition Bible that my staff um, purchased for me recently, and I like it, but I, I'm not thrilled about the concept, never have been, of red letter Bibles because Christ is the author of all of it. And so really, it all ought to be in red letters, not just the words that he spoke during his earthly life. And so the words that he has spoken would include the epistles. But to date, it's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if we had nothing more than the Sermon on the Mount, it would be sufficient for building on the rock. Now, there's a, a, a debate, quite a bit of debate among Christians as to whether the Sermon on the Mount applies for today or not. Clearly, I believe that it does, or I wouldn't have been preaching through it for these last number of months. But we know that it does, not only because all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, but because Jesus says here in verse 24, act upon it. So, yes, this will be fully realized when he is reigning on earth in his kingdom. But even until that time, Jesus expects that his people would act upon these words. It is for today. And if we do not act upon his words, we are building upon sand. And the end result will be destruction.
What has he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Just by way of quick review. Remember in chapter 5, he started out by the, with the Beatitudes, and he is defining for us what blessing is. God defines blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God is the one who has said this. And so if I look to the world to define what blessing is, I will build on sand. But when I look at what God is after, and the first thing that He's after in each of our hearts is poverty of spirit, so we recognize our need for Him, our dependence upon Him, that's the way, that's putting down the, the, the foundation deep. It has to be built not on self, but on Christ. And so it begins with understanding that I have nothing within myself to bring about a successful life, the life that God would have for me. I must recognize my own poverty of spirit and come to Him to be my blessing. He moves from there to talk that we have been made salt and light. He does that. He transforms us. When we place our faith in Him, we become salt and light. That is our identity. That is the basis for our distinctiveness in this world. And anything other than that is sand. If I think that my identity, I think that my, my, my distinctiveness in the world is because of what I've achieved or who I am or what I can accomplish, it is sand. I am distinct and my identity is wrapped up in what Christ has made me, salt and light. He spoke of the eternality of God's Word, that not a single part of a single letter would fail before it is all fulfilled. He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, speaking of the priority and value of God's Word in our lives. He says that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. He goes on and says that we must have a, a proper understanding of what it truly means to not commit murder, to not commit adultery, to, to, to not lie, to, to have our word be yes and our, our, and our no, no and no. He goes on to talk about retaliation and what it means to, to, to love other people, to love them perfectly, to be perfect in our relationship with others even as God is perfect toward all. He talked about personal piety with prayer and fasting and giving, all of these being expressions of our relationship with Christ. In the Lord's Prayer, that we should seek His will, His kingdom, not our will, for His name to be hallowed, to be um, anxious for nothing, to be not be storing up our treasure on earth, to not be judging lest we be judged as we judge others, to seek, ask, seek, and knock. All of these things, the two ways, the two gates, all of these things are His words and they're meant to be applied. What we do with Jesus and His words determines everything. Destruction or success. Everything is determined by what we do with Jesus' words. Wise men obey Jesus. To build upon the rock, to act upon His words, is to obey Jesus. Jesus is that rock. When we cannot obey His words apart from a personal relationship with Him, it takes Jesus to be obedient. True obedience is from Christ. It is through Christ. It is to Christ. True obedience is not derived from self. It is not sustained by self or by commitment. 
And it is not obedience to formulas or principles, but to the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. This verse tells us that judgment is coming. The storms are coming. And a house built upon Christ and His words is the only hope, the only salvation. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Not obeying Jesus and His words is folly. It is building upon sand. There is no other rock. Everything else is sand. Sand can be other teaching, teaching that is not from Christ, not about Christ, not leading to Christ, not exalting Christ. It can be the sand of building a life on personal experience, on emotion, on ambition, making self the focus of life, living for money, for success, for recognition, for fulfillment, even for safety. This is sand. For the unbeliever, eternity is at stake. And for the Christian, our own well-being in this life, as well as eternal reward, is at stake. In verse 27, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house and its fall, and it fell, and great was its fall. Building upon the rock does not prevent storms. Building upon the rock doesn't keep us from making mistakes in life. And it is clear in these verses the only difference between a wise man and a fool is what he's building on, his foundation. And the foundation will remain hidden oftentimes until the storm comes. What is the coming storm. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that will be standing before God in judgment. As one theologian said, man's greatest problem is not his sin. Man's greatest problem is that he will one day have to face a holy God. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Final judgment. If you have not built your house on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, you have built your house on sand, and you will not withstand the judgment that is coming. For those of us that know the Lord Jesus, we pass out of judgment into life, Scripture says, and we will never face that great white throne judgment that is reserved for all those who have not placed their faith in Christ. But there will be trials in this life, many of them. And there is also God's discipline or judgment upon the nations and upon even His own people, the church, which Scripture speaks of often. A collapsed house, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, means an eternity of separation from God and eternity of punishment. A collapsed house, if you have placed your faith in Christ, speaks of a loss of personal faith. 
you do not endure in faith to the end. Enduring to the end is a, is a significant theme in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see it come up several times in this book. It can be, a collapsed house can be a loss of faith, not only personally, but a legacy of faith. You leave behind destruction, not life, because you did not live a life founded on the rock. Rock or sand, this is really serious stuff. We as Christians will face great trials, health, financial, relational, even persecution. We as Christians will likely experience some of God's discipline upon His people and upon our nation. We should not be complacent about the fact that storms could be coming, will be coming. We ought to be building upon the rock. We can determine to build upon the rock of Christ and His words. Are you? Here are just a few diagnostic questions. Am I building upon the rock or am I building upon sand? This is meant not to design to make you feel guilty, but that we would be honest and face the truth. How's your prayer life? Do you talk to God? Do you have time where you, you, you are in conversation with the Lord? You speak to Him and you listen to Him. If you have no prayer life, I don't think you're building upon the rock. Do you read God's Word devotionally on a regular basis? Is God's Word central in our lives? There's a difference between reading God's Word because we're on a reading plan and the goal is to read the Bible in one year. It's a great thing to do. There's a big difference between reading the Bible as a performance thing or as a goal to accomplish and reading the Bible with an open heart where you're talking to God and God is talking to you devotionally and regularly, slowly, with a listening heart. If you do not have a devotional relationship with God through His Word, It'd be hard to say that you're building on the rock. If you are a parent, are you praying for your wife and children? Are you praying with them, with your wife and with your kids, dads, moms? Are you praying with your husbands and with your children? Are you reading the word with them? Are you leading them to Christ with intentionality? Or are you just letting others do that for you?
the go-to passage when doing a wedding, actually two, either 1 Corinthians 13 or Ephesians 5. I want to look at Ephesians 5. Again, all of the words of the Bible are the words of Christ. These epistles are, are no exception. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, this is a familiar passage. But in light of our subject, building on sand or building on the rock, I thought it would be a good passage to go to. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, we would understand the everything does not include sin. No man has the right, the authority, to lead his wife into sin. But wives, the world would never tell you to do what these verses say to subject yourself, to submit to your husband. These are not the words of the world. These are the words of Jesus. And to ignore them is to build your house on sand. It may not make sense to you. It may frighten you. It may make you feel that you have no control. None of us have any control. And if we spend our lives trying to get control, maintain control, we are deceived. And it will only result in destruction. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man should leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. As I've said before, this isn't about a husband being willing to, to die for his wife. It would include that that he's the one who gets up at night at the noises and he's the one who locks the doors to the house and makes sure that his family is safe. If an intruder comes in, he's the one who's going to face the intruder. And if he has to die for his family, he would die for them. It certainly includes that. But what it's really speaking about is dying not for your family, but dying to yourself. Dying to yourself. Not putting yourself ahead of your wife. Putting her ahead of yourself. 
And dying for her is just one expression of dying daily. Dying daily to ourselves and loving our wives. I went to a gun show yesterday and thought about my wife. <laughs> and I brought her home a gift. And it was not a gun. <laughs> but I brought her home a pair of binoculars because my wife likes looking at the planets at night. And a good pair of binoculars would help do that. And she was so impressed that I would go to a gun show and think about something other than myself <laughs> while I was there. There are a million different ways to die to ourselves in the love for our wives. Let each of you, individual among you, also love his own wife even as himself. And then let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. I'll tell this story maybe again. I guess I've told it before. Years ago, um, I was listening to Laura Schlesinger on the radio talk about a book that had come out that she had just written, The, Bro the Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands. Clever title. And I heard her being interviewed by James Dobson and his co-host on Focus on the Family. And those two men said, you know, no man could have written this book. And she goes, oh, I know. They'd hang you up and quarter you if you ever read, if a man ever read, wrote a book like this. So that got my attention even more. And I was aware of a couple in the church that was having difficulty and um, and I bought the book and read it, and I thought, this might be a good book to pass along, but it probably shouldn't come from me. And so I asked Patsy to read it, and it just sat in our living room for a long time. She didn't read it. Don't know why, but... <laughs> I took a few days off and um, just to have some time with the Lord, and I called home and checked on her, and and she was on the phone with me, and she was crying, and she said, I, I picked up that book, and I started reading it. I have not been a good wife. And she's crying. Wow. She passed it along to Arlene Doherty, who's not here today, and Arlene read it. And she came up to me in church one Sunday, and she had tears in her eyes and said, I, I read that book, and I have not been a good wife to Kelly. Wow. Two women that wonderful wives. Arlene led some of our staff single women in, the, in, a, in that book, reading through it. And one of them said, my life will never be the same. What's so powerful about the book? Basically, even though she was not writing as a Christian, she was writing words that come straight from Scripture. She just wanted women to understand what respect and disrespect look like so that they would stop building on sand, so that they would stop being the instrument for destroying their own families. It's a powerful book. If I knew a book is powerful for men, I would recommend it. It goes both ways. I cannot, as a man make my wife build upon sand. I'm sorry, build upon the rock. 
and I, my wife cannot make me build upon the rock. Jesus knows that. But he's telling us individually, as men and women, even boys and girls, you have one thing you're in control of. Are you going to build upon the rock? Base your life, live your life on what God has said in his word. Or not. And the or not is certain destruction. To children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Period. It's hard to be the one that has to tell your children that, but it's a choice that they have to make. And no mom or dad can make their kids do this. We would hope that from a heart relationship with Jesus, they would say, I do want success. And this is defining success. Ignore this, and I will not have the success in life that I want. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is why I ask those diagnostic questions, not complicated. Are you men who are sitting here as fathers, bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? That doesn't just mean giving them a spanking when they need it. Are you praying with them? Are you reading the word with them? Are you teaching them what it means to walk with God? Or are you leaving that up to your wives? Or are you leaving it up to people at church or at school? It's your job. It's my dad, my job as a dad. When my kids were little, I could not pass this off and I could not expect that I can leave a legacy of faith and not act upon the words of Christ. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. This would speak certainly of employer relationships, employee relationships, if it speaks of slavery. With fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them. And give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with God. I love hearing over and over again, we all have heard the stories of how reliable and faithful um, the Mennonites and the Amish are with their work, and even Mormons. I heard one contractor say that he would hire any Mormon and any Mennonite that walked through the door. But anybody else who professes to be a Christian, not so much so. We also know all the stories of people who have been excellent employers, not just in name only, Christian employer. 
We want to run our business to honor Christ. But then when you pull back the curtain and you ask the employees what's going on and they talk about the shady practices, the deception, the cutting corners, and you go, that is not building upon the rock. There's something about knowing that disaster is coming that sells, doesn't it? Almost every movie has some kind of impending disaster, volcano that's destroying half the United States, or a meteorite that's going to take the whole world out. So we'll send some aged astronauts up and blow it up with nuclear bombs. And there's just, I mean, tidal waves that take out, you know, the whole um, East Coast. Sometimes I think it wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> um, but there's something about just the impending catastrophic event that just go, you just, man, we'll go buy the movie tickets and go see it. But Jesus is telling us, the storm is coming. The storm is coming. Will we be ready? Why do people spend their lives building on things other than the words of Jesus Christ? Why do we have such difficulty putting into practice? What is the problem? Here's some quotes. We can only obey the written word when the living word acts through us. Amen. Obedience is desperately depending on the living word to practice the principles of the written word. This kind of obedience shows wisdom. Christianity is not facts to believe nor formulas to be lived, but a relationship to be entered into and a life to be received. Our life is not a life of steps. Our life is a life of trust. Our lives survive the storm because we depend upon Christ. Building on the rock does not prevent storms. It may even invite storms as those who reject the rock attack those who build on the rock. We reduce the Christian life to formulas, to steps to succeed, formulas for marriage, formulas for raising kids, formulas for succeeding in business, formulas for our walk with God. Formulas don't work. We fail to realize that when we build our lives on formulas, we are building our lives on sand. We build our lives on Christ and His Word. Why would anyone build on sand? Sand is easier. To speak of it just literally, the sand that Jesus is talking about is sand that is near a river that when the river rises, it crashes against the house and the floods destroy the house. So it's not the sand of a desert. It's the sand of a seashore, sands that are along a river, sands in a coastal area. Why would anybody build there? Because you don't have to haul your building materials up the hill to the rock. It's just easier to build on that flat area. That's where the roads typically are. That, and it's just easier than climbing up the hill to the rock. Speaking spiritually, 
It's easier because I don't have to yield my will, my thinking, my anything to him. Keep in mind that the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the entire book of Matthew, is about Jesus being king. And if this book is about anything, it is about the authority of the king. And if I'm not building my life on the words of Jesus Christ, it is because I'm not surrendering to his authority, to his right, his right to rule over me. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And when it comes down to it, it's not that his words are difficult. They're beyond difficult. They're impossible. That's not the problem. Because with the difficulty and the impossibility, he supplies the means. He is the means. He is the dynamic for what he demands, as one person has said. We can only obey the written word when the living word acts through us. So when it comes down to it, the reason that I don't do what he has said, the reason I don't put into practice what he has said in, his, in this message is because I don't want to yield to him. It's an issue of authority. It's not an issue of difficulty. It's an issue of authority. The wife that just does not want to yield to her husband does not want to submit to one who is such a bad husband. Peter's message is so powerful when he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, you wives, consider Sarah and be her daughters. Twice Abraham passed her off as his sister to another man. And yet it says, without fear, she submitted to him. She obeyed him, even calling him Lord. Boy, that'll get you mad. Can't even say those things anymore without wondering, you know, who's going to storm the doors. How could she do that? Her trust was not in Abraham. Her trust was in God. That's why she had no fear. And Peter goes on to say, and that scoundrel of a husband will be won over by the way you live your life. With quietness, with demeanor that is becoming of Jesus, cuts across. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Paul also says, husbands, do not be embittered against your wives. Can you imagine Jesus being embittered against his bride? no chance. And if anybody ever had a right to be embittered, it's Jesus for the way that we treat him. And there's no bitterness in his soul toward his bride. And neither should there be in ours toward our wives. The issue is authority. When Jesus had finished his sermon, it's an interesting response. It's both good and bad. They'd never heard anything like this, and they said that. So Matthew chapter 7 again, last two verses, and the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes, they were amazed at his teaching. 
Wow. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So the good here in their reaction is that they were impressed with Jesus and with the message that he gave because they're hearing an authority and they're going, we've never heard anybody speak like this. Normally, the scribes, the Pharisees, they would spend all their time saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Well, Pharisee so-and-so says this. And they were just constantly quoting people. And they weren't just speaking and saying, this is what the Lord says. So it was astounding. And they were impressed. That's not a bad thing to be impressed with Jesus and what he is saying. He spoke with authority, and as you go back and read this sermon, you see he speaks as authority as the teacher, the legislator, the lawgiver. He spoke absolute truth with absolute knowledge and with absolute authority, and they didn't, and they was not lost on them. They saw it. He spoke as Savior. He knows the way of salvation, and he bestows it. He spoke as Lord and as judge. He says judgment is coming, and he is the judge. He spoke as God. In 5, 11 to 12, he equates the prophets and God to the disciples and himself. In 7, 21 to 22, he equates the will of God to relation with himself. In 7, 23, he passes sentence, which is the prerogative of God. And here in 7, 24 to 27, he says the foolish and the wise are determined in relation to him. Great authority. Teacher, legislator, lawgiver, savior, judge, God. He spoke with authority because he of who he is. Disappointingly, though, yes, they were impressed. They were amazed, but nothing more. Most stayed on the broad way. They failed to believe upon him, which is the final application of this sermon. Build on the rock. Take my words and do them. Most didn't. They stayed on the Broadway. You can be absolutely impressed with the Bible, impressed with, with what you hear, and yet we don't incorporate by faith what he is saying. We are still on the Broadway, and we are still building on sand. A response, and not just a response of amazement, is demanded by this sermon. Will Jesus be loved and obeyed as the ultimate authority of my life? The next two chapters, 8 and 9, are miracle after miracle, all displaying his authority. Shouldn't be needed. Chapters 8 and 9 should not even be needed. Matthew includes them under the inspiration of the Spirit because he knows how we are. The words that Christ has given ought to be enough. And sadly, they aren't. And so Jesus' next two chapters is going to be doing miracle after miracle, again, just trying to reinforce that he is God and he has the right to rule in each of our lives. It's a wonderful sermon. It's a beautiful sermon. It contains verses here that are some of the best-known verses of anybody in the world. You can walk up to basically anybody if they've never, don't have any clue what it means to be a Christian. Likely they have heard 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Likely they have heard, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Likely they have heard, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some of the most famous popular verses in all of Scripture are in this sermon. But it means nothing. I can love them, I can appreciate them, I can memorize them, but they mean nothing if I'm not acting upon them. And if not, we are building upon sand. There's no other substitute. It's rock or sand. And Christ's words are rock. And when we humbly cut, and it takes humility, we can't do this on our own strength. We cut, it takes poverty of spirit. Jesus, I see what you're after. And I love it. I want it. My inner man embraces what you're saying. My inner man is, it is, rejoices at what you're saying. But I need you, God, for this to be fleshed out in my humanity. And I want it to be. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Your name being hallowed. Seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, this is what I want. And the Lord's just looking for that heart. This isn't a concluding sermon about commitment. It's a concluding sermon about yieldedness to his authority. That's where this has all been going. Will you say yes to him? And say, Jesus, bring these things about in my life. That's all he's looking for. And he will. But take, make no mistake, he is going to spur you, he's going to encourage you in your areas where, where these things impact life. Men in your roles as husbands and fathers, women in your roles as wives and mothers, all of us, he's going to say, this is where I'm talking about. This is where I want you to yield. This is where I want you to say yes and step forward in faith. And let me help you. Let me work through you to see this done. And he will. And when the storm comes, and it will, we will not jettison our faith because we've been living in faith long before the storm ever came. And we will leave a legacy of faith. And again, if you've never yet placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life, I cannot encourage you strongly enough. The ultimate storm is coming. And you have only one hope. And that is Jesus Christ who is our rock. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good. And the words that you've given to us are life. But they cut across the authority that we would so vainly and foolishly want to try and maintain for ourselves. I thank you, God, for your patience with us, 
and for your mercies. Thank you for speaking clearly, O God, to us through your word. And I pray that we would all, Lord, just yield to you as the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in saying yes, that we would depend upon you and in faith obey you. Trusting you, God, for the strength to put into practice these things that you have said. Because that strength is not in us. You are the obedient one. And I thank you, God, that as is true all through your scripture, you set before us life and death, and you just so simply say, choose life. May we all do so. In Christ's name, amen.